we made a decision on the third step. I wanted to just uh, say a few more things about the third step. You know, the a lot of times we get hung up on, I don't know how to turn my will in my life over to the care of God. Well, if you knew how, you wouldn't be doing these steps. The step doesn't say you turned your will and your life over to the care of God. It says you made a decision to. It's in the practice of the next step that you're going to find out how to do that. So don't get hung up on the third step and sit there forever trying to get holy, pure, wonderful. Because you can't, because it's the next step that's going to help you to do that. Okay, step four said made a searching and fearless moral inventory. Yeah, fearless. Man, isn't that, doesn't that suck? It's all of that. <clears throat> I couldn't do this step for a long time because I read the fifth step. <laughs> you ever watch Password and they give the clues one at a time? That's the way we ought to have the steps revealed to us. One at a time. Don't let you look and see what's coming next, because if you do, you might hold you up. And that's what happened to me. It held me up. Now, a moral inventory. What exactly is a moral inventory? And I heard a lot of people talk about what a moral inventory is. Did you ever think about looking up the word moral, what it meant? Usually that's the last resort, you know, we find out what the word means. Moral doesn't mean, you know, people say, well, don't take an immoral inventory, you know. Well, most inventories are pretty much immoral. Uh, <laughs> the moral means the right and the wrong. The right and the wrong. And so in this step, I wasn't going to find out if I was good or bad, but what the truth was. What was the truth about Mary Pearl? What was I really like? Well, I couldn't tell you, because somebody would say, who are you? Do you know that horrible feeling on the inside when you're not able to respond to who are you? Because you really don't know who you are. So I had to find out who I was. And when I realized that that was going to be an identifying step so that I could discover who in the world I was, it wasn't so bad. Now, a true inventory tells me what I have and what I don't have. So I had to keep that in mind, and I kept saying, but what if, you know, I love that, what if? But my, my responser told me to take six words out of my vocabulary. What if, yes, but, and I know. <clears throat> she said, if you knew, you'd do it different. And she said, I know means that you've got a closed mind. Yes, but means, don't you see, I'm different. And what if means I'm living in the world of waka waka. Because I'm trying to figure out solutions to problems that haven't even happened. I can't figure out solutions to problems that have happened. So why bother trying to figure out once the things that haven't happened? Okay, so I said, but what if? What if I find out something really bad in here and God won't like me anymore? She said, well, we've never had that happen yet. We've never lost anybody on a fourth and fifth step. But she said, in your case, she said, I'll tell you what, when you start writing at the top of the page, put God loves me. And at the bottom of the page, put God still loves me when you get through with that page. And then turn it over and do each one. She said, maybe that will help you a little bit. And it did. It helped a lot. Now, <clears throat> I had a lot of fear and a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about my past behavior. I hated my mother. I had broken my marriage vows. I had failed as a wife. I was sterile, unable to be a mother. I had the morals of an alley cat. I condemned myself all the time. I didn't want to look at myself. So this was going to be a very painful thing to do. And if you do not experience pain and depression, chances are you're lying. Because most of us didn't get here singing on the front row in the choir. 
You know, I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. But I wasn't as good as I wanted you to believe I was. I was somewhere in between. But I had to find out the truth. Now, truth is a hard thing to find with me. And when I would start writing down about something, my, I was told to go ahead and to write out everything that I could remember. And I did a case history. I was not able to do the little lines like it suggests in the big book because I didn't have any touch with feelings and anything. So I had to just write down a lot of things so I could find out what my feelings were about things. So I did a case history. And I started back as far as I could remember. And one of the things that I wrote down as a happy memory, just to show you how warped a kid can be, was the fact that my daddy and I used to go hunting and fishing together, and I just loved it. And there was this one day that Mama decided to go with us fishing and ruined the whole day. And we were there in the boat, and I caught a little bitty fish. And my Mama took one look at it and pronounced it was not a keeper. And she ripped it off my hook and threw it back in. Well, my philosophy of life was if it had an eyes and a tail, string it. And so that hurt my feelings, and I, I went into this squalling coma right in the boat. And my daddy told me to come in the back end of the boat with him, and he said, we'll get her. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded good. It had a good ring to it. <laughs> so as she would catch fish, she would turn around to him to take them off, and he would rebate her hook. She'd turn back around, he'd give me the fish, and I'd put it back over the board. And we did that with every fish she caught. And I sat there, and as I was writing all that, it occurred to me, this was my first memory of revenge. And I was putting it down as a pleasant experience. <laughs> but you see, that told me something about me. I liked revenge. I loved the getting even. I loved the planning. I liked, you know, slow, premeditated revenge. You know, every dog has their day. If you wait long enough, your time will come if you just wait and be patient. Now, I have infinite patience when it comes to getting even. Normally, I don't have a lick of patience, you know. But for that, I could wait. I waited three and a half years to get even with somebody one time. You know, and the, let me tell you, the doing it is not near as much fun as the planning it. Because I got off on it. God, I fed on that sickness. I fed on that. So, like I say, it was hard for me to get honest about what things were because what I thought things were, they weren't. Some of the most pleasant things I thought showed some of the most glaring defects within me. And some of the things that I thought were so tragic weren't that big a deal at all. Now, it occurred to me when I was writing down that I had perhaps committed a little bit of adultery. Just a little now, mind you. It's like being a little bit pregnant, you know. And I kept saying, but now here's why I did it. Now, when uh, we went to Newfoundland, I observed that nearly all the guys that were over there without families would mess around until families would arrive, and then they'd become pillars of the community. So chances are mine did too, because I didn't go with him when he left. And being that that was the case, since he probably did that, and after a while probably became in my mind he did that, then it would be okay for me to do that to him. Now the truth of the matter was I saw this dude, he looked pretty good and I wanted it. But you see, I couldn't just go out and do that because that went against how I believed. It went against how I was raised that I was supposed to be. So I had to justify and give myself a reason. So when I came across this inventory and did it, I wrote my excuse down. And then I would go back and I'd read it and I'd say, that's not exactly the truth. So I'd mark that out. And I'd write down below it, no, 
I did it because and whatever. And I did that three or four times on that one incident, and finally I marked a big X to the whole thing, and so I did it because I wanted to. And now we have the truth. <laughs> but it was very difficult for me to admit those things about myself to get down to the point that I did it because I wanted to. And it didn't make any difference if it was right or wrong. Self-will said, I want to do it, so I did it. And that was the bottom line. I did it because I wanted to. And when I could begin to see that in me, I could be more honest about things. I didn't like what I saw. If you liked what you saw in your fourth step, you wouldn't be here. Because there's things about you that you don't like. And there's things about you that you've done that you're ashamed of. And there's things you've done that you feel guilt for. And until you deal with these things. And if you've never done anything to be ashamed of, if you've never done anything to feel guilty over, why are you here? Why are you here? I, you know, I find it hard. We do not, we, we are not a collection of goody-two-shoes as a rule. Now, that's not to say that some of us haven't done things others have. But it's not what we've done that is so bad. It's how we feel about ourselves because of what we did. You know, whether you have an affair with one guy or 25 guys means absolutely nothing. It's how you feel about you. And I can tell you that I had an affair and how I felt about me. When I was doing it, I thought it was wonderful. It was sneaky. Forbidden fruit tastes the best. There's a thrill of excitement. I'm addicted to excitement. And then all of a sudden, when it ended, I felt dirty. I felt cheap. I was ashamed. I had guilt. Now, that's how I felt. And what did I do? I took that one little deal, and I put a word across my forehead, and I wore it for years. Because this is how I saw me, and I saw whore. And I think a lot of times we do Nobody else said that to me. But it's how I felt about me. And I felt dirty now, and I didn't feel good anymore about me. Any feelings that I had had up to this town now were discounted because I did a no-no. I did something bad. And because I did something bad, I felt I was bad. When I made a mistake, I felt I was a mistake. So see, it wasn't the things I did. It's how I felt about it. And how I felt about it would dictate how I was going to react, what I was going to do, and it was going to set a whole pattern to my life because my life changed there as a result. Not of what I did, but how I felt about what I did and then the reaction to that. Okay, I want to talk about denial. You know, we are really good at denying things. There's a story about a, a priest, a rabbi, and an Al-Anon who all went to hell. And they asked the priest, they said, what are you doing here in hell? And he said, well, that celibacy thing, I never could get that down good. And I guess that's just my punishment for breaking one of my vows. And they looked at the rabbi and they said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, when I was a small child, our next door neighbor invited me over for supper one night and we had pork chops and I loved them. And I developed a taste for pork and I had to have it off and on the rest of my life. And that's probably why I'm here. And they looked at the island and they said, what did you do? And she said, what do you mean? And they said, well, what did you do to get sent to hell? It's not hot and I'm not here. Now, I live like that. It's not hot and I'm not here. Haven't you ever said, I can't believe this is happening to me? I can't believe it. And as my husband says, believe it. <laughs> because we have a tendency to deny the reality of our situation so many times. We can't see it. And when people point it out to us, we deny it to the bitter end because we don't want it to be. We want our life to be a certain way and we have a tendency not to accept the way it is. 
And so we're in constant conflict with reality because reality is what's happening right here, right now. Right here and right now. Well, the inventory turned out to be one of the most useful tools that I have found in the program. And the thing about it is you can use it in any area of your life. Like, for instance, if I want to take an inventory of my finances, I can take an inventory and I can say, what's good happening financially, what's not happening financially, and why? You know, what am I doing that's contributing to the financial instability in our home? Now, I blamed the alcoholic for years because of his drinking that we had financial problems. Now, I'm going to tell you about some of our financial problems that we had as a result of his drinking. J.D. wanted, he wanted more than life itself to have a metal storage building at one time. And so I went out and bought an 8 by 10 building for my little boy. I paid $88 for this metal building. Brought it home. They delivered it in a cardboard box. And it sat on the patio till it rotted off. But he had to have it. So one day I finally threatened I'm going to send it to the dump. And he gets out there and he's putting it together with a screwdriver about three or four inches long. And I went out there and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm putting it together. And I said... I looked at the little piece of paper I found wadded up on the ground that was the direction. You know, you don't tell him anything either. And uh, I said, why are you putting the roof on the floor? And he said, I don't know. And I said, where are all our tools? You're using that little teeny screwdriver. Where's the rest of all these tools? Because I had bought a fortune in tools. And he said, I don't know. They just get away from me. Well, that's not an acceptable response. And it made me furious. And so I began to scream and to cuss at him, and I got in my car and I drove across two towns to the nearest Sears store. I had cussed him every inch of the way, and he was still in the backyard giving it to us. <laughs> and by the time I got to Sears, I was like a tail of the hun, and I had come to conquer. <laughs> and that poor victim there, the salesman in the Sears, has a bad time with me, I'll tell you. <laughs> this little guy comes up and he says, may I help you? And I said, oh, I'm screwdriver. And he said, well, lady, what kind do you want? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, there's a whole wall full of screwdrivers. And I said, give me one of everything. So I left Sears with $138 worth of screwdrivers to put the $88 building together. You can see his drinking cost me lots of money. He would spend money we didn't have on booze, and I'd show him, and I'd go to the mall, and I'd spend more money we didn't have. And being that I was the only one working to pay for it, it wasn't really smart on my part. And I had to come to the realization after I did an inventory in, in our marriage and our finances that I was the one who caused the greatest financial burden on our household. It was me. Because in my need to try to look like a very successful businesswoman, I had to dress, I thought, in a certain manner. I had to have uh, things that, were, that made me look successful, I felt. And so, therefore, I put a lot... And the more successful I became, the more I had to hide the fact I was living with a drunk. And it cost money. And, you know, when I think about it, I always had choices about spending money for his drinking. When he'd get thrown in jail, I had a choice as to whether I wanted to go get it out. But my pride would say, get him out before somebody finds out. I didn't really give a damn if he stayed there and rotted. But I didn't want anybody to know. And so I would go and I would pay the fines and I would do what was necessary to do. So I was the one that caused the financial hardship. I didn't like seeing that. I didn't like seeing that. Uh, you can do an inventory in your relationship with God. You can do an inventory in your relationship with anybody. 
you can do it on any area of your life. You can do an inventory and find out where your part of the problem is if you're ready to look at it. And you can be honest. And that's the reason that the rigorous honesty in this program is so important. Okay. The 12 and 12 tells us that our basic problem will be instincts in our instinctive drives that are carried to excesses. Have you ever wanted a little bit of anything? If it's good, do it till you die on the spot, right? You know, I have another disease. It's called more. More. Give me more. Give me more. And I'm even that way with pain. God, I love pain. Rub it all over your body, you know. Did you ever stop when it hurt a little bit? No, no, no. My God, let's go for agony. And then you limp away, and how could they do that to me? <laughs> they didn't do nothing to you. You do something to you. Did you know, I could, I could blame the fact that I had an abusive mother. I could blame the fact that I had alcoholic grandfather. I could blame anything. But it's not important how the horse got his ass in the mud. Get it out. <laughs> you know, it's like being on the Titanic, and it's sinking, and you're saying, let's see now, how did this happen? Now, everybody else is in the boats, and they're going away, and you're saying, there's bound to be a reason this happened. And then all of a sudden, just as you're going down, you say, oh, I've got it. But it hasn't changed anything, has it? You know, so knowing something doesn't necessarily change anything. To know and not to act upon the knowledge, you might as well not know. And that's a fact. And I blame people for not loving me. They never loved me enough. And the truth was, I didn't love me. And no matter how much other people tried to love me, I saw them as insincere. You don't really, you just don't really love me because you don't know me. And why don't you know me? Because I'm not going to tell you about me. I'm not going to give you me because if I give you me and you reject me, my God, I'm lost forever. What will I do? So I don't give you me and therefore I can't ever depend on your love because you don't love me. Now who did that to me? I did. And so this was a step in which I had to take responsibility for my own actions. And it sucks. It sucks. Okay, the most common symptoms of emotional insecurity are worry, anger, self-pity, and depression. Did I hit anybody? <laughs> worry. Did you know I was raised that it was a moral obligation to worry? If you're not worried, you don't care. And if you don't worry, I can call my mama. She's a professional worrier. She'll worry on just the principle of worry. And she'll say to me today, aren't you worried? And I'll say, no. And she'll say, you don't care. And I'll say, I care, but I have no power over it. So if I have no power over it, there's no need for me to worry. There's a difference between being concerned and worrying. Concerned is a normal feeling that we have that we care what happens. Worry is wasted effort. It means that you don't think your higher power can take care of it. That's what it means. And I didn't know that. And, I, and my sponsor said, if you pray, why worry? And if you want to worry, why bother to pray? Because she said, all your worry does is cancel out the prayer you just made. You're saying, God, please help me. I don't think you can do it. She said, your higher power must not be strong enough. And I realized that if I had a God that I could totally understand, he wouldn't be strong enough to meet my needs. I have to have a God that can do things beyond my understanding because if it's within my understanding, I, could, I don't understand why he put the money in the pants pocket. 
There's no rhyme or reason to that. See, I would never thought of that. My God doesn't use logic. He uses wisdom. And there's a world difference between logic and wisdom. And I didn't know that because, see, I was knowledgeable and I was logical, but I didn't know how to use those qualities wisely. And that's where the serenity prayer, God gives you the wisdom to take those things that you've been given and put them together and use them in a wise manner. Okay. Another thing. It's from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that we've suffered the most. And we've been especially stupid and stubborn, at least I have. But the primary fact that we fail to recognize is our inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Have you ever noticed how in a true partnership there's two people, each one independently strong, but instead we seem to form, or I seem to form, I'll speak in the we, but I mean I, relationships where you have to have a, a dominant one and a dependent one. And then you're like this. One, each one of them's holding up the other one. Because you see, the dominant one has to have someone to dominate. The dependent one has to have someone to depend on. So neither one are uh, able to stand alone. And when one of them moves, they fall apart. Whereas when you have two strong people, two people who are real people, who are independent, who are confident and what have you, who are being uh, working through the program and to where you're finding out who you are and you're being happy with who you are and you're making the changes that's necessary, then if something could happen to either one, but you will still be okay. It may not be what you want, but you will be able to walk because your higher power will be there to hold you up instead of another person. And he doesn't give this and that. He stands up. Okay, I never once sought to be a member in my family. I wanted to be the dominant one in my family. I never wanted to be somebody's friend. I wanted to be your best friend. I never wanted to be just a worker in the workforce. I wanted to be the best damn worker they ever had there. I never wanted to just be useful to society. I wanted to be the reason society revolved. You know, I had a tremendous ego, tremendous ego. And yet I was like a little kid on the inside. You know, it's funny how someone who has very low self-worth and self-esteem can have such an inflated ego. They don't seem to be the kind, but that's how I was. On the inside, I felt very small, but you would never know it from the outside. You would never know it. So my journey has been to temper the one from this side to bring the other one up so that I can be the kind of person I always wanted to be so that I can be that I can stand up here and share the worst of me with you and still be okay about it that's freedom and that's what doing the fourth step did you're as sick as your secrets you know all those tragic things that I never wanted another living human being to know that wasn't the problem I knew them I knew those sick secrets on the inside and they were the things that made me feel dirty on the inside with those secrets, those things I was afraid somebody else would find out. There's nothing that's going down in my life or has gone down in my life that I'm afraid for you to know. That's the freedom I gained in this. I could share with you each and every seedy thing I have ever done. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it. It just happened. You see, I have forgiven myself, so I don't have to worry with that anymore. I had terminal uniqueness. How can I tell you who I am when I don't know who I am? I felt different. I always felt different. I was fat. I felt different. I was uh, the. I, I was an orphan. I didn't feel like my mother was mean. I didn't feel like you'd understand. I could think of a million reasons why me and you had nothing in common, but I wanted to be with you so bad. If you told me that you wanted somebody to do this, I'd do that. It didn't make any difference. I wanted to fit in. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to like people, but did you know it's real funny when you're trying so hard to get people to like you, you don't like you? 
because you're doing things that you don't want to do in order for someone else to approve of you. And then you may do it, but then you'll resent. And who do you resent? You resent them. And they haven't done anything to you. You're the one that did it to you. And I begin to see all these things. But my healing began with this step. Now, whatever form you and your sponsor decide would be best for you. Now, the, the big book talks about making lists. Uh, there's also a case history that's mentioned. Uh, and in Al-Anon, we have a little item called the Blueprint for Progress. And as I told you, this is my opinion, the things that I'm studying. And in my opinion, the Blueprint for Progress, for what it's designed to do, is the most worthless piece of literature we have. Because I took that, and anything you can answer yes, no, maybe, and sometimes, too, I got no relief from that. Now, maybe it worked for you, and if so, that's fine, but I'm sharing my experience. And I felt very depressed after I did that because I thought I was supposed to feel better, and I didn't feel anything. And then that's when I sat down with my sponsor, and I went to her husband. Now, as I told you, my sponsor uh, is a black lady, and there is a black gentleman I'm sure most of you have heard of. I'll not break his anonymity, but he goes all over the country with a big book study. And so he also ran a halfway recovery house for suffering alcoholic men. And so I went over there and I said, what do you do here for them? And he said, well, we do a case history and we give them this form. And he gave me a book of stuff to look at. And boy, it had all those things that you're not going to put down unless you're point blank pinned about it, you know. Because I'm the kind of person, if you don't ask me exactly, you don't get the whole story. Well, here's questionnaire got the whole story. There was no stone unturned, you know. And I was even offended by some of the questions. They were so good. <laughs> And you know, it's real funny, you can't be offended by something you haven't done, <laughs> if you get truthful about it. And so that's what I did. I sat down and I wrote, and when I got through, I had, you know, War and Peace had nothing on me. I had this volume, and you were talking about hanging on to it. Dear God, I would have been lopsided from carrying it. It was so big. But anyway, I went through this, and I, like I said, I had this huge thing, and then when I got through, I went back and went through it, and I read it. And I began to find where the different character defects where I had started doing things and why. What situations that I had a tendency, the patterns of my life that I would put myself in over and over again with different people, different places. But it was the same thing that I was doing each time. And it was, it was absolutely amazing to me that I would be so stupid and do that again and again and again and again. But you see, if you don't know how, you'll go back to the known each time if you don't know how to do something different and I was looking at that I had so much hate and I had rage and anger and fear oh fear was eating my guts now if you had asked me what I was afraid of I'd say I'm not afraid of a living thing in this world and I wasn't but I was afraid of the little crawly things I wasn't afraid of people as much as I was afraid of things and I was afraid of the dentist and I was afraid of storms and uh, I was afraid of height I mean basically I was afraid and most, most awful, I was afraid of what I saw on the inside of me. I was afraid. And I was afraid that God wouldn't love me anymore. And that's the reason I had to keep coming back to God loves me. But by the time I got through, I was pretty scared. I had a lot of unnatural fears. I found that there was something about me when I was five years old. I had a girlfriend. Uh, I, we lived on a highway. And because my parents were old, there weren't many kids and, and their well, there weren't any children in their contemporaries. And so down about seven or eight blocks from us was one girl, and then further down there were about 11 boys. So naturally, I became a tomboy because I played with more boys than girls. But it was real, excuse me, important in my early years to have a friend. I used to make up imaginary friends. 
There was a lady here last night. Her name was Sheena. Wasn't there? Anyway, it amazed me because when I was a kid, I used to fantasize I was Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. I loved it, you know. You know, I loved that. And uh, I had two dogs, and they were my lion and my tiger, and we would go all over our property. And they were my friends. I loved my animals. And I was so comforted by my animals because, you see, I had these dogs. And if you ever thought about it, the word dog is God spelled backwards. It's God's gift to show you how he loves because no matter what you do, your dog loves you. You can kick him. You can scream at him. You can do this. You can do that. But the bottom line, he'll still come back and he'll love you. And I didn't know that. But I would run and I would fantasize and I'd do all these things. And so when I found Shirley, who lived down the highway, she was so important to me because it was another person and she'd come up and play. And I remembered one incident. I had a bicycle and Shirley's family was real poor. My daddy was a military man and we had some money. And so I got a bicycle before anybody else my age on our block. And I was riding my bicycle and Shirley come down and she'd want to ride. Well, I was always willing to share. And so I shared my bicycle with her. And when it, her turn was over, I said to her, it's my turn. And she said, I want to ride it again. And I said, but it's my turn. And she said, if I can't ride, I'll go home. And that hurt me. But I let her ride. Because, you see, I needed her there. But I resented her. I resented her all my life for that. Because I needed her, I resented her. And because I wanted her to be there, I resented her. And I saw that in me, and I didn't like that in me. If you're not sorry for your, and your conduct continues to harm others, if you're an alcoholic, you're sure to drink. Or if you're an Al-Anon, you're sure to go back to your old destructive behavior. That's one of the warnings from the big book. Writing it down in black and white, you can't justify or rationalize it near as well. And you'll see the patterns and the truth about yourself. Your positives, your negatives. There's good in the, the worst of us, and there's bad in the best of us. Nobody is perfect. And that began the action. Okay, in step five, we admit to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I admit it to God for forgiveness. I admit it to myself for understanding, so I learn to understand who I am. And I admit it to someone else for the humility. And believe me, it's an humbling experience. Now, humility doesn't mean you have to grovel. I think a lot of times we take the word humility and we don't like that word. We don't like humility because we associate it with humiliation. Well, true enough, if you don't practice humility, you will get some humiliation. But it's not necessary to do it that way. To me, humility was learning to be teachable. I don't know everything. I'm not God. And see, before, you couldn't tell me anything because I know. And as long as I know, you'll never teach me anything because I know. Have you ever tried talking to somebody that says, I know, I know, I know. And then they go ahead and do it their way, right? That's the way I was. Because, see, I knew. But then I realized that if I knew so well, why would all this happen? So obviously, I didn't know. And I was going to have to learn another way. All right. And why do I have to tell someone else? Why is that necessary? Once you know and God knows, why do you have to tell somebody else? Because if I don't, I'll rationalize it away. Pretty soon I'll rationalize and justify why I did that makes it okay. And then I don't have to change it. As long as it becomes okay, why do you have to change something that's so wonderful and perfect? You know, why do you have to change it? And then I was afraid of rejection. 
what if I tell somebody this and they don't like me anymore? What if they don't like me anymore? And then I felt when I got to looking at it, I felt too much guilt. God, I had a lot of guilt. I wanted to get rid of that. And so I began to pray for the right person to do it with. It had to be someone who loved me and someone who had known who I really was and someone who would accept me anyway. Now, that's hard to find someone to fit that. And I said, well, my sponsor loves me and she accepts me, but my sponsor was out of town. And I want to tell somebody now. Well, there was another woman in the group that I had been using as a co-sponsor for years. For years, two years. Took me two years to get this first one down of the good inventory. And so I called her and I said, Kathy, I said, Bell's out of town and I need to do a fifth step. Would you do it? And she said, have you prayed about it? I said, I have. She said, let me pray about it. So a few days later, Kathy called and she said, well, I feel okay about it if you still feel okay. I said, I won't do it. I said, I don't want to do it, but I want to do it. And so I went over to her house and we spent the next ten and a half hours sharing. And what was so surprising, see, Kathy was one of these I thought was the goody two-shoes. And she began to share with me that day. And when it was over, she said, you know, you haven't done anything I haven't done or wanted to do or thought about doing. And the way she believed to do it, to think about it, you might as well have done it. So she felt just as guilty from thinking about it as I had from doing it because we had two different value systems. But the thing of it was, it affected us both the same way. So it doesn't make any difference what your value system was. It doesn't mean if you're real religious or you're not religious or whatever. That ain't anything to do with it. It's the rules that you set up for yourself. And when you break your own beliefs and your own values, you've set yourself up for misery. It's just that simple. Just make sure what your system is. And see, in doing that first step, I found out what my value system was. What, are the, what do I believe in and what do I really value? And I found I had broken every one of those things that I would, would throw you away if you did that. And that's what I did to me. I threw me away. And I didn't belong anymore. But something happened when we got through sharing all of this garbage. She had me to tear it up. And as I would rip each page in half, she said, I want you to repeat, this is the past. I am putting the past in the past. It is just garbage. It need not hurt me anymore. And when we got through tearing it all up, we took it out and we burned it. And she said, now, this is the garbage of your past. You have clean sheets to ride on. You have an opportunity now to live differently if you go ahead and work the rest of the steps. Now, see, I didn't hear everything she said that day. I heard she said, you have a clean sheet of paper, you have an opportunity. But I didn't get on with the rest of the steps. I rested after the fifth step. I rested, and I did myself a disservice. Because, you see, I learned what had the power to hurt me, and I told about it. But I did nothing to change it. You see, your steps up to this point, one, two, and three, are mental propositions. The first step, you've taken your first action. The fifth step, you've gone and you told somebody what you found. Nothing to change it. You see, your steps up to this point, one, two, and three, are mental propositions. The first step, you've taken your first action. The fifth step, you've gone and you told somebody what you found and why your life was so screwed up, but now you're willing for it to be different. If so, you're going to have to do something different. And I didn't. I went right back to doing what I'd always done because I didn't go on with the rest of the steps. 
And pretty soon I had more garbage. Because you see, unless I am working on trying to get better, I am getting worse. There Life to me seems to have a negative and a positive. And if you're not working on the positive, you're automatically in the negative. There is no limbo area. There's nowhere to just, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. You can't just stand still, correct? We're, we're human beings. We move. And so there I was. And I couldn't understand because, see, I thought somehow when I did this fourth and fifth step, I was going to be clean and pure and I wouldn't have to do all of these things anymore. I was going to be okay. And then the very next day, I found myself lying. You know, I found out that uh, in starting to work the sixth step, the sixth step says that we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, I knew what my defects of character were because I'd looked at that. But what happened? I wasn't entirely ready. You know what you were asking me to give up? Coping mechanisms. That's how I coped with life. This was my character defect. Because, see, if life was going along okay, I didn't have to practice them. But you put me in a bind. You corner me, I'll lie. And I can lie looking at you straight in the eyes. Because that is something that I had learned to do over the years. I remember with my mother when I was 16 years of age. I had gotten picked up by the law because I was speeding, reckless driving, resisting arrest, and talking an officer of the law. It could have been speeding, but I had to open my mouth. And they took me to jail. And I was late, late getting home, and I had a curfew, and I knew that when I drove in that when she found out, if she found out that I had been late, that was one thing. But my God, if she ever found out I'd been in jail, and then how I had uh, borrowed money off her girlfriend's boyfriend to get me out of jail. You know, all these things. When they hauled me in, they said, who's your parents? I said, they're both dead. Might as well have been. She'd let me walk forever. I knew it. And so, therefore, I had lied there. But when I got home, I knew my mother had told me, she said, I can always tell when you're lying. I ain't tell by looking at you. And I thought, how did she do that? And I heard her say one time, you never give out eye contact when you're lying. I thought, huh. So that night when I went in the house, I went in squalling. And she said, what's the matter? Where are you? Where have you been? And I said, oh, I had this flat out in the middle of this big and horrible area. And I was so terrified, and I stayed in the car, and I locked myself in. It was hours before I got help. And this man finally came and changed my car, and I was able to get home. Oh, God, I was so scared. Please don't jump on me. And she said, bless your heart. I had done it. I had looked at her eyeball to eyeball, and I had lied and got away with it. And that gave me a license to kill. Because now I knew the secret to how to do that. You know, I heard a guy say the other day, and I caught a guy from Chicago, and he said, you know, he said with his propensity for lying and his sexual problems, he should have trained to be an evangelist. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's real funny, but I learned how to do that so young, and it was a habit. And that's what I'm saying. These habits of a lifetime don't change overnight, and you're going to have to become willing to have them change. And I was afraid. Because what if you asked me something and I was afraid to tell you the truth? But I found out I was going to have to do it whether I was afraid to or not. I was going to have to learn to start telling the truth. And so... I became willing to give that character defect up. I became to give, become willing to be honest. And so my sponsor gave me a suggestion. She said, now you ask God to help you stay honest. She said, God will remove the defect. You just quit putting yourself in a position to get hurt all the time. Oh. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you're the one that sets yourself up every time. So she said, when you find yourself telling a lie, correct it. What do you mean? 
Well, she said, I said, sorry that I'm telling you a lie. She said, well, then stop and say, I'm telling you a lie. The truth is, I said, ooh. That leaves a bad taste in your mouth, you know. That leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. But she said, you're going to have to do that if you want to get better. You're going to have to do that. You have to become willing. Now, with a lot of people I sponsor, I've noticed that uh, I'm not the only one who likes to procrastinate, you know, and to sit on it when you get to that sixth step. But you're going to ask yourself, are you willing to change? Are you really willing? Are you really willing to do what's necessary? Are you willing to go to any lengths? I think that's the reason that's written in the chapter 5 of the big book. Because you're going to have to go to some lengths that you're not going to dream if you're willing to do this. But the benefits are going to be fantastic. The book says that if we're, if our work is solid, uh, is the work solid and are your stones in place? You're going to build a foundation. And I found that after I did that fifth step, I never felt any closer to God than I felt that night. It was like I had stood in front of God and said, this is me, the real me. And God said, I know, I've always known the real you, and I love you anyway. I felt so good, because, see, I could be that way and still be loved. But I knew that I didn't really want to be that way. I didn't want to continue to hurt all my life like I had hurt before, and I could see that if I continued to live like I had lived, I was going to have to go back. If you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. It works that way. So, I said, well... There ain't a big deal here. But my coping mechanisms were so strong, so strong, I had a thing like exaggeration. Did you ever exaggerate? Never. <laughs> I didn't know how to tell a story. I could be driving down the road and the car would pull out in front of me and I'd have to slow down. It would irritate me and we'd go on. By the time I'd get someplace, that nut pulled out in the middle of nowhere, swerved all but had to kill myself in order it got attention. I was addicted to the attention that I got from the exaggerations, you know. A little bit, you know, it's never enough. You just got to blow it up and blow it up. And so I had to find out that uh, there were little incidents in my life. I never knew there were incidents. I had crisis. I don't know how to deal with an incident. Blow it into a crisis and I can handle the crisis. And so that's what I do. And uh, I, I had a habit of trying to act superior that was to cover up my inferiority. And so, therefore, I had to let you know sometimes that I was afraid. I had to let you know. I had to become willing to let go of that other. And how am I going to protect myself out there in that world when you know people are out to get you? You know, I didn't realize I was so paranoid. But let me tell you something about being paranoid. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. There are people out there in the world that are cruel, harmful people. And you must be aware of that. Uh, you know, I, and my, one of my favorite things is it's not fair. It's not fair. It's just not fair. And my sponsor said, that's right, it's not. I said, is that all this shit? And she said, that's it. <laughs> you can't fix that? She said, no, life is not fair. Nowhere were you ever guaranteed that life would be fair. And I said, I don't like that. She said, like it or not, that's the idea. So I had to try repeatedly over and over and over to be willing. And the first thing that I noticed that began to go 
will see anger. Not necessarily the anger, but the rage. Anger is a God-given emotion, but I never had a little bit of anything. And you see, I thought people would say, count to ten, I'd say, five, ten, shit, I'm there. And they'd say, you don't understand. You don't get mad like that. And I said, well, what do you mean? And I began to see what it was is you made me angry, but I don't say anything about it. And then you make me angry, and I don't say anything about it, but I'm swallowing it down on the inside. And it's like a little volcano, and it's going bloop, bloop, bloop. And something else happens, bloop, 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 bloop. And then one day, the nothing thing happens, and you go, Wah! and the volcano erupts. And you erupt on whoever's there, and they cannot understand for the life of them why they are getting all of this. Because that's just like with my husband. I'd go back, I'd say, now you've done it. This is just like the time in 1972. You know, you know. And you'd look at me like, oh, it's crazy. And I was. But then I'd go back and I would dump it. And I heard a man one time, he said, what it is, we carry this little gunny sack of garbage around with us. And we take all these things and we throw it in. And then one day we get all we want to carry and we holler, niggy sob. Now I got you, son of a bitch. And you dump it on them. So around our house, it's sort of a joke, but when we're aggravated one another, we'll holler, Nicky sob, Nicky sob. <laughs> and we don't have to do that anymore. But I had to become willing not to carry my garbage bag. I had to start saying to you, when you upset me, that makes me angry. I don't like that. I had to say, you'd be surprised just by saying, that makes me angry, how that will diffuse that anger. Because you've been allowed to express it. And sometimes my husband will say, okay, and nothing changes. <laughs> and that's okay, too, because I have at least expressed how I feel. And it was that frustration because I was afraid to tell you I was angry. I was afraid to tell you that something upset me. You might not like me. That fear of rejection would come in every time. Character defects work together. They're like a little web. And one plays on another to another to another. You know, each one, it talks in the big book about our character defects calls to the character defects in others. Sick calls to sick. You know, have you ever noticed when somebody new gets sober or somebody new in Al-Anon goes to an open AA meeting and they instantly fall in heat with someone there and it's usually the guy has been sober for three minutes? Sick calls to sick. <laughs> you know, we're attracted to the sickness. But after a while, we see that we begin to be more attracted to wellness. And that's good and healthy for us. And it's comforting to know that nowhere on record does it show anybody's had all their character defects removed. Because, you know, that worried me too. You know, I didn't want to get holy, <laughs> like that there was any chance. <laughs> but I wanted to be able to live with other people with a degree of harmony and to be able to have a healthy relationship. Did you ever have a healthy relationship? I can tell you one thing that has helped me more in the area of working relationships is a couple of years ago, a bunch of us got together and we decided that we were going to try and concentrate on working the traditions in our relationships. And we evolved a study from that and we have really learned how to get along and why we have had sick relationships, the things that we do. And I might share some of that with you if we have time this weekend. Um, one of the funny things that happened when I was becoming willing to give up anger was I was beginning to substitute humor. This was where humor began to come back into my life. I ordered a preserved fern. Now, it was a very expensive fern, 
and it was a real fern that they treat the leaves so that it stays forever and you never have to water it. Because I have a tendency to water them to death, literally. And so here I have my little preserved fern, and it came in this long box, and they had a little planter and a uh, hanging thing that you would put all the little ferns in and a little hanger, and it was going to be wonderful. And so I had J.D. helping me, and he was holding the, the little thing, and I'm adjusting all the little ferns, and then we were going to put the hanger, and I said, here, help me hold this. And he thought I meant hold the hanger, and I thought he understood hold the pot, and as a result, fern flipped upside down. Now, you know how planes look on an aircraft carrier with their little wings like this? Well, that's the way my little fronds were. Everyone was broken off at an angle, and I was furious, and I stomped my fern to death in my living room carpet. And J.D. stood there, and he looked at me, and he looked at the fern, and he said, Do you feel better now, honey? And I thought, Do you want to join the fern? And he said, uh, You're doing better, though. He said, You're doing better. He said, You just stomped. You didn't scream. That was sweet, believe it or not. It was, that was how, because normally that's what I did. I would scream and stomp and use a lot of verbal abuse, so I was getting a little better. And then we went out to his mother's uh, home for Christmas one year, and they have a real long driveway. And he had asked me that night. He was tired. He said, why don't you drive? I knew I was being set up. But I had made a decision that morning to give up anger for today. And nobody's going to ruin my day today. I'm going to be happy today. I made a decision, a conscious decision that morning. And as I was going out of that driveway, backing up, I got off the beaten path, and it had rained, and I went right up to the axle. And I was stuck, and J.D. <laughs> was not a happy camper. And he, he got out, and he looked at it, and he called me everything but a human being. Now, normally my reaction to that would be violence. Don't talk to me like that. And instead, I got out, and I went around, and I looked at the wheel, and I said, well, I'll be damned. It's still in the mud. That didn't help at all. And did you know something? He laughed. So you see, as I became willing to let go of those things, God began to help me. And it's, like I say, I was telling J.D. the other day, I have not had one of those fits in years, in years. And that's good because, see, when you have high blood pressure, you don't need those fits. You don't need all that stress. And I had found that uh, the more I worked on me, the less problem that I had with the high blood pressure, the more that I worked on me. So as I became willing to let go of those things, God would do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I didn't know how to live without those. But God could do it for me. So I begin to incorporate now the seventh step prayer in the big book. And so each morning when I get up to start my day, I start my day by saying, Good morning, God. Instead of, Good God, it's morning. I used to do it the other way all the time. And then I offer myself to God in that third step prayer. And I go ahead. If you notice in the big book, the amen is not till after the seventh step prayer. So somehow in my mind, I think that needs to all be together. Because you do what you can as you can. And when I would get to the end of my prayer, I would ask God for the strength to go forth and do His bidding. And then I would put in my special request for everyone that I know who has asked me to pray for them. 
I'd say, God, you know people's needs. And you know, it doesn't take a long time to pray for a lot of people. Because I don't have to ask for this and this and this and this and this and this and this. All I say is, God, you bless them and you give them what they need because I don't know. I don't have to give God the direction anymore. And so that's how I do my seventh step. Um, there's um, a little illustration I like to use. It's called my black dog, white dog syndrome here. And putting yourself in positions to be hurt and what have you. I feel that there's two dogs on the inside of me, and they've been in war from the beginning of time. And one of these dogs is a black dog, and he represents all the negative feelings that I have, all the negative thinking that I have. And the other one, on the other hand, is the white dog, and he represents the positive. And they're in a war. Now, which dog wins? The dog you feed the most. So it's very important for me to make my white dog stronger because on any given day I can feed that negative. You can get up and say, oh, sun's shining too bright out there. <laughs> it's hot. You ever notice how noisy that water is? <laughs> probably too cold to enjoy anyway. Fish are probably dead. If I went out there to fish, they wouldn't get on my hook. I'd be hung up in that limb way over yonder. I just know. And you know, it doesn't take long because that's my norm. That's the way my mind normally thinks. It thinks in the negative. I'm not going to get what I want. I'm not going to get to do what I want to do. That's the way I am. That's normal. And instead, I have to say, wait a minute. Isn't it beautiful out there? Did you notice how the sun is dancing on top of that water? Did you notice that foam? I get to watching that foam and there's no two pieces exactly alike. Isn't that a miracle? wonder why God made some water running and some water still. And I can get off onto that, and I don't have those negative feelings. And I feel good about me, and I feel good about you. But I don't feel good about me when I eat garbage. And that's what I do when I take those negatives and put them in. And as I become willing to live in the positive, you'll be surprised what God will show you. You will be so surprised at the visions that you will see about good things and the possibilities. Your attitude on life will change. So if you don't, if you like your attitude the way it is, you better leave now. Because as we go on, and we're going to finish up later on this afternoon, or in the morning, you're going to find that your attitude will change if you'll follow the directions in the 12 steps. Thank you.